0: News
1: Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And if you're listening to us on live stream, go along to YouTube and uh, watch it live. It's actually quite a great fun, isn't it, Justin? We're in the studio. We've got Dudu, who obviously handles all the sound for us, uh, dancing to the music and keeping us in line.
2: Especially on this fine Tuesday evening. i got a great bunch of guests and uh, looking forward to get back into the news.
1: Haven't we, just? Uh, I, I had a terrific interview earlier with Magda Zikcha. Uh, we've got a clip on it. On her harassment by the cops, it's it's actually uh, crazy that you think about what was happening in twenty sixteen. Our guest, uh, co-host tonight, Stephen Nathan. Uh, I mean, you'd remember those times, uh, Stephen. They were almost surreal when looking back on them.
3: Yeah, as you say, you know, it's it's it's, it's such a tragedy that uh, so much time, money, and energy was spent on completely the wrong things. There is so many opportunities and things we should be focusing on. And if you look at the wasteful resources, uh, you know, it's not as though we're not doing anything. We're actually trying to shoot ourselves in both feet and move backwards. So it's good. It's good that that's in the past. But certainly we all want some accountability, uh, you know, for what has happened.
1: You know, what is crazy is that the guy who made all the chaos, a chap called David Matlobo, who was then head of state security, is still a member of the cabinet. It's extraordinary, Uh, only in South Africa. Anyway, I'm sure we will have more on that story coming up. You're going to to be listening to Magda. We give you the other uh, interesting stuff today. You've been following the whole Baldwin property story. Uh, At the Business Investment Conference, Justin, Pete Fulion said it was a great value stock. And wow, people there were listening to him because they shot the price up just after the conference. And tonight we're going to go into some depth on it.
2: Exactly, Alec. And um, you take what Pitful, a guy like Pitful Yun says very seriously. So I've had a look at Baldwin. It does look attractive. And I'm looking forward to chat to Steve Brooks, their CEO, about the company and the prospects of the company going forward.
1: Yeah. And we also have the partnership with Easy Equities, who we're going to be adding to the business News portfolio uh, when we have the opportunity, that's the last Tuesday of the month where we update it. It's it's enough now leaving it off the the, the charts. It must come in. Uh, also, tonight we will have an interview that our Jackie Cameron, our editor-at-large, did with Geri Fari on the results from another great company, another hot stock, if you like, Capitech. And then we're kicking off the show after our usual updates. With Emile DeToy. he's the Managing Director of Harris General Partners, a good news story there on Africa infrastructure and a $200 million capital raise. But let's kick off with Jackie and the flash briefing.
4: In a victory for taxpayers and a blow for corrupt politicians, South Africa's second highest court has rejected an appeal by former President Jacob Zuma to get to the state to pay his costs in a corruption case. This is the latest in a string of legal defeats for the former president. Zuma, who ruled the country for almost nine scandal-marred years, stands accused of taking bribes from arms dealers in the 1990s. He is due to go on trial on May the 17th. The Supreme Court of Appeal, in a judgment handed down on Tuesday, said that it would not be handing Zuma a blank cheque to pay private lawyers. Zuma, who was ordered to pay the state's costs, was first charged with graft in 2005 when he was deputy president. At that time, he reached a deal with the state attorney whereby the government would pay private lawyers to defend him. President Cyril Ramaphosa, who succeeded Zuma, told lawmakers in 2018 that that matter had cost taxpayers 15 million rand. Meanwhile, the Constitutional Court, which is the nation's highest legislative body, is separately deciding whether to jail Zuma for defying its order to testify before the Zondo Commission that is probing corruption during Zuma's tenure. Around 35% of senior managers in government do not have the necessary qualifications or credentials for their position. This was revealed by the Minister of Public Service and Administration Senzo Mchunu in a written response to a parliamentary question posed by the opposition Democratic Alliance. My broadband reports that the largest number of those were in the police department, followed closely by the Department of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development. The Department of Justice and Constitutional Development also has a high number of employees who do not have the necessary qualifications. Botswana's health ministry has asked the country's health regulator to probe two deaths of people who had recently taken a COVID-19 vaccine made by the Serum Institute of India on behalf of AstraZeneca. The regulator has been tasked with finding out if the deaths are linked to taking the vaccine, the ministry said in a statement. And U.S. health officials have recommended a pause in the use of Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine on similar concerns about blood clotting side effects. Bloomberg reports that a type of brain blood clot called cerebral venous sinus thrombosis was seen in combination with low levels of blood platelets in six women between the ages of 18 and 48. It quotes the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Food and Drug Administration. The J&J vaccine has been rolled out to about 300,000 health workers in South Africa. Capitec, South Africa's largest bank in terms of customer numbers, is resuming dividend payments after recovering from the severe COVID-19 lockdown. It reported an increase in headline earnings of 18% to just under 4 billion Rand for the six months to the end of February. Capitec has plans to continue scaling up by expanding its reach in business banking. For more on that story, listen to the interview with Capitec CEO Gheri on on Radio, where you'll also find all our other interviews with business leaders. And that was your BizNews Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews.
1: You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, while we were listening to Jackie, I was uh, responding on WhatsApp to uh, a... I don't know if you can call a fan But certainly a supporter Of the best football team in the world West Ham United Who uh, is in Berlin and is watching us Directly from there It's amazing technology isn't it uh, if, you, if you haven't been on, on uh, YouTube Before on the live stream On YouTube come on you'll see a couple of uh, Really good looking guys and once in a while I'll move you across and you can see uh, The rows amongst uh, us thorns here uh, Who's doo well, let's uh, pick up on the markets first, Justin. How's it been today?
2: The JSE All Share Index was up at 67,100. MTN increased 4 Rand to 94 Rand a share on the back of news that CEO Rolf Maputa bought over 5 million Rand's worth of the company shares. Sasol increased 6.5% to 225 Rand a share on the back of stronger Brent crude prices. NASPIS increased 100 Rand to a touch of 3,500 Rand a share. And car track fell again, this time by 7% to 48 Rand 50, the shares now down almost 50% from its highs a few months ago. In the currency markets, the Rand was flat against all the against all the major currencies, to 14 Rand 56 cents to the dollar, 20 Rand to the sterling, and 17 Rand 36 cents to the Euro. Gold is flat at $1,742 an ounce. Brent crude is up at $64 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 920,000 rand a Bitcoin.
1: Bitcoin's certainly been doing its thing. Another the stock that's been doing well, if you been watching it on the last few days, is Transaction Capital. Now, you recall that uh, Pete Fulguin said it was such a great deal that Transaction Capital had done with We Buy Cars, and then you investigated that on, on a global basis it was really cheap.
2: Yes, if you had to compare it to their global peers um, extremely cheap and then we had David Hurwitz on the show not so long ago and he explained um, the reasoning for that transaction and between We Buy Cars and SA Taxi uh, the two components of transaction capital the business is doing fantastically well. It
1: looks like some investment analysts have uh, been scratching their heads going over the numbers again and maybe agreeing with what Pete had to say. Stephen is that the way it works? You, you've been in that field Side on the sell side before you you started ten x. Do you guys uh, clearly when information comes out, you don't uh, or, or the people I won't say you guys the people in that field, they don't automatically say buy or sell a share. You got to crunch your numbers first.
3: Yes, you 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 have to crunch your numbers. Um, I mean, obviously, if something comes that is new, that wasn't kind of you know on the radar. So the Webar cars, I don't think. Uh, people expected uh, transaction capital to have a look at that. And obviously when Naspers had a look at it, I don't think there was much disclosed. So so if there's something new, you have to certainly do your work and you'd rather, you know, there is always a temptation to be first, but what's much more important is to be more thorough and hopefully more thoughtful and look a little bit longer term. So it's always that trade-off between, you know, being the first person to commentate uh, on that and try and get a bit of maybe PR publicity, uh, but it's much more important to be right. Uh, So, you know, people are doing the homework and they're taking a little bit longer, you know, as Warren Buffett and Alec, you know, uh, long-term investors would be much more comfortable on that. But you should have a good grasp on the existing business. Uh, you know, so, it's, so so, something like uh, We Buy Cars, obviously it's a, you know, it's a new transaction and, and also it's a very disruptive business. And if you're kind of, you know, looking at traditional finance companies, you know, they, they're much easier to value than something that is technology-driven, scalable in a different way uh, and with a lot more upside.
1: There's quite a few parallels there with uh, being in our business in media. Rather be right than be first. That's, uh, that's a lesson very hard learned. Uh, but talking about new things and different uh, ideas, Emile Detoy is the managing director, as we mentioned earlier, of Harris General Partners. And uh, Emile, you guys have been raising capital for infrastructure investment into Africa for well over a decade now, and certainly started off doing it at a time where no one wanted to invest in infrastructure in Africa. Now you're going to pick up or you're trying to raise another $200 million for the fund, which would suggest there's plenty of work to be done on the continent.
5: Good evening, Alec. Yes, thanks very much. Um, Yeah, you're correct. I mean, we've been investing in infrastructure um, since 2007, and as you said at the time, there were not many people doing that. Um, we, we currently, between our first two funds, have over $1.2 billion under management. So, uh, to put it into context, this, this new fund that we're raising for $200 billion uh, is actually quite unique. It, and it's, it's fairly small in the context of our other funds. Uh, but we've specifically also structured it to be a shorter-term nature fund. So, so, we think it makes it quite attractive for especially some of the new pension fund and institutional investors that have been looking at Regulation 28 and want to get exposure into infrastructure assets um, but don't necessarily want to go into a blind pool fund for a 10, 10 to 12 year life uh, with very limited liquidity so so uh, this fund, uh, also the other reason this fund exists and, and why we're raising it is, is because we are getting towards the end of our fund 2 where we've uh, almost fully invested but we've got more investment opportunities than we've got funds left so that's why we're not calling it a fund 3, it is really just a, a, what we call a sort of a shorter term nature top up fund to to our second fund Um but uh, and, and what we'll invest in mostly is, is, is some of our existing portfolio companies expansion so um, or increasing our participation in some of our existing portfolio companies so again from an investor perspective they uh they've got a good visibility over what we will invest in um and and i think that gives that gives investors a lot more comfort to 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 open up to this asset class
1: it's always a much better thing to do a bolt-on acquisition than a, a brand new acquisition Stephen, i'm sure you'll agree that uh looking through over many years of companies <laughs> the more successful investments by companies are in areas they already have think about dimension data when they bought a little bit of DataCraft Asia some years ago, and then they added a bit more, and then they bought the whole company out. And then, when they tried to start buying companies uh, uh, sight unseen, uh, they they went horribly wrong.
3: Yeah, without a doubt. So it comes back to your 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 circle of competence. You know, what are you good at? What do you have a track a track record in? You know, and if there's if there's potential to kind of scale that to grow that. You know, then take that opportunity. So that sounds really good. The concern is when you you sort of run out of road in your core market, uh, you kind of saturated your industry. For example, in South Africa, then all of a sudden, you know, you think you can go and conquer the US or the UK. You know, and that's incredibly risky. And more often than not, that fails. So I think you're exactly right. What Harith are doing, building, you know, building on what they're good at, uh, you know, is very encouraging for investors. I'd be interested to know who your who your investors are, who's who's funding the two hundred million dollars.
5: Well, I think, Stephen, uh, we, we're basically starting our fundraising now, and uh, because, again, as I said, it's a, it's a fairly small fund for us, we will, we will target all our existing investors, clearly, uh, give them an opportunity to invest, as well as a few select uh, or a small number of, of mostly South African institutional investors, we are looking to target some of the, some of the pension funds looking to get into this space. Um, and also, I think, you know, not, just, not just with, you know, the attractiveness, also not just with regard to um, uh, sort of like Walton opportunities, but the, the issue is that generally we do typically end up doing greenfield infrastructure, which uh, means you also take construction risk uh, very often two to three years in some of these larger projects. Um, and, and, and what we're doing in this fund is to invest in, in projects where there's very little construction risk, so although it has been de-risked. Uh, we know the assets very well. We know the management teams. We've seen the track record. Uh, and we believe we've got an um, exciting uh, sort of uh, you know, entry prices into into a, a number of these assets. I mean, we, to the extent that we, we raise the full amount, we will potentially invest in one or two greenfield assets as well. Uh, but, but mostly the, the, the fund will be targeted at some of our existing portfolio assets. And that's also the reason we can then see a shorter time frame in terms of exit opportunities and liquidity for investors.
1: Emil, Africa is a big place, uh, 54 countries, and it's got some hot spots as Total is finding out in northern Mozambique, are you exposed uh, to any of those areas that are very, very high risk, uh, like the the gas field uh, that, that they've now hit big problems with?
5: Yeah, Alec, um, no, no, we're not exposed specifically to those areas, but again, uh, I think when, when we look at opportunities, you know, we uh, not so much look at the country, but we look at how we, how we can mitigate the risk in this specific project, so... One of our latest deals we've announced was the bite Bridge border, post uh, in Zimbabwe. And so a lot of people um, would potentially have Zimbabwe on a no-go list. But if you, if you actually get a transaction and you can structure and mitigate the risk uh, properly, and, and we've had experience in doing that over the last 15 years, then, then you can actually find some of your better deals in some of the more risky countries. But I mean, we, we really do go belts and braces in terms of risk mitigation. Uh, and what you'll find is, for example, in the in the bike bridge uh, border post uh, project in Zimbabwe, most of the South African banks co-invested with us uh, on the debt side. So, so, so you know, and, and those are pretty much risk-averse kind of investors, if you think about it. So, um, so, so it's not really about where we are and whether there's hot spots or not, but but we do avoid areas where we where we potentially see some some you know sort of very high levels of political and and other risks
1: and it's a good news story as well you just think about Bite bridge and how important it is that we open have a, a good streamlined border post uh, and getting rid of corruption trying to make it better work better between south africa and i guess further north uh, what are the big projects that you have on the continent
5: um well alec i mean I'll just just get back to your first point i think um, you know on, on the zim one i think which is very good news is um Infrastructure really brings down the cost of doing business. And, and so when you get people and goods moving through, for example, the, the busiest border post in, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, you know, it's basically good for all other companies. And, and, and investors, you know, sort of would start to realize that investing in infrastructure then benefits all of your other other asset classes as well, whether it's listed equity or government bonds, etc. But to come back to your question on, on other large projects, um, some of our landmark projects that we have is, is for example, uh, the Lake Tokana Wind Power Project, which is the largest wind power project in Africa. Um, so, from a renewable power story, we started actually developing this in 2011. I think we concluded the investment in 2014. Um, and it's been generating and delivering up to between 10 and 15% of Kenya's uh, power on a, on a renewable basis. Um, and I think what's exciting about about those kind of opportunities is that, as I said, you know, we we we, we understand the asset, we know it very well. Uh, these are kind of transactions that uh, we develop over a very long period of time, and because we've been in the market there, uh, and, and and so we're quite excited about that. Other, other interesting large assets that we're invested in that you you may be aware of is CIVH, uh, they're the owners of Dark Fibre Africa and uh, Vumatel. Uh, So we invested there together with RemGrow. You've would would probably picked that up through the RemGrow results recently. Um, And also Lanceria, you know, an airport asset that that I guess most of us know very well. So so we obviously have a list of of very interesting and very large assets across the continent. Uh, But typically, you know, most of of these listeners, I guess, know the South African assets better.
1: You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Isn't that interesting? Busiest border post in Africa, Bike Bridge. Wow. Uh, let's move on to the uh, other hot stock story. Today, Heri Ferry, Chief Executive of Capitech, uh, they came out with some cracking results. Our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron, uh, had an opportunity to talk to Heri about the numbers and uh, ask him some well rather interesting questions let's listen in
4: after an early knock by covid 19 containment measures jse listed capitech has reported a dramatic improvement in headline earnings to just under four billion rand for the six months to the end of february its headline earnings fell for the year by 27% overall, but the bank has joined peers First Rand and Standard Bank in resuming dividend payments. Capitec is now South Africa's largest bank in terms of customer numbers. CEO Harifuri shares why the bank reached a tipping point towards exponential growth and what's next for Capitec as it continues to develop a strategy to scale up. Speaking to me, Jackie Cameron of Business, he also shared some insights on how his team is working on a strategy to eat into the market share of business banks. This exponential growth is quite extraordinary, this move from 7.3 million clients five years ago to 15.7 million now. What do you attribute that growth to?
6: Well, I think
7: a very important thing, and we actually discussed it yesterday at our board meeting, is that um big thing on focus, The ability to say no, because it's quite easy to say yes to everything. I want to do everything. But what is the real client needs? And to really focus on two, three things that really makes a difference. And then execution. Um, Because when you talk strategy, it's easy to talk strategy, but it's, it's the execution part. How do you deliver? And what is the client really experiencing? Yeah, it's the ability to execute. And I think what is very important is... To measure it, Uh, it's like what I said is everyone says service is important, but what is service? Um, In our case, we've defined it as side-by-side consulting. So our consultant and our client looks at the same screen and sees what has been entered. Um, We're measuring every single screen so we can understand when a consultant is standing still for a long period at a particular screen. You know, it's that detail of execution that we focus on.
4: Was there any tipping point a couple of years ago or a specific incident where the ground shifted for you in your business?
7: Yeah, I think probably uh, when the brand was established, uh, when people were stopped saying Gaberik uh and where the brand was stacking, uh, has been accepted in the market, uh, we always said it's gonna take 10 to 15 years. And I think it was probably about 12, 13 years uh, where it actually changed, where people were not saying Gaberik but it was accepting the brand and that we're a full, fully fledged uh, bank and we're not a micro lender anymore.
4: There's been some talk that you're moving beyond <laughs> being a bank to a fintech company. Do you think that's a fair assessment?
7: No, we don't see it as a fintech company. We see it as a financial services uh, 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 company. You will see our branding. We've taken actually bank yeah. uh, away. The Reserve Bank, uh, we need to sell bank. But it's actually offering the uh, financial services to our clients, making our clients uh, understand the end-to-end financial well-being. That is the why in our lives.
4: And then uh, your shift towards the higher end of the market, uh, do you think that's going to help you scale up much more? And what was the reason for that shift?
1: Yeah, I think it's a
7: uh, perception in the market. It's like when we started and we defined our business plan in the early 2000s, we said we want to bank uh, 86, 87, 96, 97% of all South Africans. Uh, It's just that top, top end that really is looking for very specialised services uh, that we won't bank. Uh, We leave that to your uh, specialised banking services. Um, And it was just a strategy. We started off first in the rural areas and then went into the urban areas. And we started at the lower income and moved up uh, into the high income. So from day one, the plan was to bank all South Africans.
4: Can you just elaborate a bit on your strategy in terms of your home loans and how you've got the loans in your books and the relationship with SA Home Loans?
7: A very good example of a partnership whereby for us it's not a priority in the short and medium term to offer home loans uh, because we're focusing on optimize the 15.7 million clients as well as build a business bank. We believe there's bigger opportunities there. But we sit with a situation where, let's say, a client is um, 25 or 30 years old. Uh, he's banking with ourselves and he wants to buy a house. Um, and the moment he goes to any one of the other four traditional banks, they will lure him in and say, you must move your bank account. In our case, we've got that partnership with SI Home Loans. And they offer him the bank banking uh, uh, product. The nice thing of that is it's not on our balance sheet. Uh, so we are the risk and we earn a very small uh, fee on it. Uh, and it's for us, it's a priority thing. We're quite relaxed with it. We're happy with our relationship. We've got a very strong relationship with SOM loans. And our focus now is, is actually on, on building the business bank.
0: Banks have
4: been criticized for not handing out loans to businesses. Are you going to be able to do anything to free up the funds more for your clients?
7: Your, your problem is not that there's a lot of... If you look at the loan scheme that was developed by the Saab um, to help uh, small businesses, I think it was just too late uh, because at that stage, uh, you know, if I look at ourselves, we've already committed about $12 billion. Uh, If I look at the total commitment of the banks, it was probably over $200 billion. Uh, And that was done in June. The guarantee scheme only came in place September, October, and what we're definitely seeing is that people are scared to take on uh, more debt, and they have rather cut back uh, in operating expenses to manage um, uh, uh, their businesses. I think if you're in a growing economy and everything is going well, then people say, "I'm prepared to take the risk of t- uh, taking on a loan." Um, but if you're uncertain, you say, "I want to limit my my, my um my credit, and I want to make certain that I'm in a healthy situation. And I think that is what is happening in South Africa is people are careful at the start of the fight.
4: So, how are you going to grow that business? You brought Mercantile in. Are you looking at other acquisitions?
7: No, we've got no. I've always said uh, that we're not an acquisition company, we uh, believe in growing. Um, so, for us, yes, we've bought it. Uh, we want to change the service model completely and make it completely different we want to be able to scale it uh so we're building that and once we're happy with that then we will rebrand it to cabinet business bank uh, which will be probably middle of next year Um, but we're quite happy with the acquisition um like i said there's plenty of opportunities on the business banking side and then to optimize our nearly 16 million clients currently
4: so what are you going to do to eat into the market share of the other business banks
7: well, I think wait and see. <laughs> that's what we're building currently. Um, that's the whole purpose.
4: Are you going to be looking at other innovations with tech like you have with the for sure. retail yeah, market? For sure. it's,
7: it's, yeah, I think if you look at if you look at business banking, the traditional uh, service model, I believe, is flawed. Uh, I think COVID has also helped it. It's a pretty COVID has actually ha- happened because, I challenge from the day we bought it. I've challenged the fact that why well, must a business manager drive out to uh, a business owner? Uh, let's take, I'm sitting in Stellenbosch, I must drive to Paul for 30, 40 minutes. Um, I'm unproductive I'm and then see you and then come back. There's much better technologies and solutions that you can offer to clients. So we're looking at, at building a digital business bank, uh, which will be different.
4: You also mentioned in your presentation that you don't want the effects of COVID nineteen to linger. How are you actually going to do that?
7: Well, you can't put COVID nineteen behind you. I think for me, it's more about on the people side to spend quality time with our people, uh, making certain they understand the why. Because if people understand the why, I believe they they deliver. And uh, we need to find that balance between working from home and working at the office. To work at home on a specific task that can be done. But the moment you strategize, the moment you brainstorm, the moment you create culture, the moment you bring on a new person, you need to have that personal contact. Uh, humans want that contact and you're so much more effective. And those are the type of things that we're working on because we believe we need to be innovative, we need to be creative. And to do that, you need to have your people with you.
4: That was Capitec CEO, free speaking to me, Jackie Cameron of BizNews.
1: And you can hear the full interview on Biz News Radio, uh, and that you can get to by going to biznewsradio.com. Got all our uh, podcasts there as well as the live stream as well. Uh, it's an interesting point, Stephen, on this, uh, when he says that the there is a structural problem within business banking. Uh, you were talking last week about a structural problem within investment banking. Do you think Capitec, given its disruption, uh, that it's done on the retail market is going to get it right in disrupting business banking, given that it is uh, there's a, l- <laughs> a lot of fixing to be done for the sector?
3: Yes, I think so. And I think, you know, Capitec. if you look at, uh, you know, uh, what they were able to achieve, you know, going back, let's say, 20 years, uh, you know, people thought it's just too hard to move your bank account. There's too much friction. It's too hard to change everything. So the banks weren't going to get disrupted. Uh, Because even if we go back to 1999, there was a lot of kind of technology because the early green shoots of, you know, technology and mobile banking still came around. And the banks were complacent. uh, And you'll know the history of the Capitech, which is fascinating because it's the ex-Burland Bank uh, people who, you know, they ran a very good small bank, learned a lot and then got the opportunity of having a second bite from scratch. And I think that's a big thing is that when you don't have the legacy uh, core systems and banking systems and the mergers and you start fresh. Uh, you know and they really uh simplified banking the whole the whole model of you know one product simple product simple for customers to understand simple for your your employees to understand and simple from an infrastructure perspective uh you know and and i think there's no doubt that uh, that 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 they know what to do they have that mentality they have that track record and just the way that they talk about their business and they monitor the business you can just see that they you know Uh, It's a much simpler business. Uh, So I think when you get really smart people with a much simpler business, you're going to get much better results and with no legacy. So I think they've got uh, uh, an excellent opportunity ahead of them.
1: And and here's the thing. The financial results out today were accompanied by a release of the annual report. So they've already got audited financial statements. Often what happens with big organizations like this is that they'll put out their financial results about this time six weeks or so after the, end, the year end, and then a couple more months before the annual report for, uh, finally is released. Here it is. I had a look at the annual report, though, because I was quite keen to see whether there was any mention of Easy Equities, which Easy Equities are very excited about the partnership with Capitech. Not a word, but maybe, maybe we'll find it in the next annual report when they, when they add hundreds of thousands of more clients there.
3: Now, can I ask you, uh, who wrote the annual report? Uh, you know, does it does it sound authentic? Does it sound like it's coming from management, or does it sound like it's outsourced to a PR agency? Because that also tells one a lot about a business, I think.
1: I haven't had a chance to read it properly, but I think you're going to find that it's exactly, and that is such an important point that you made there. When when you were uh, looking as an analyst uh, back in the day at annual reports, what how did you know that, say, Brian Joffe wrote his own uh, CEO report for Budvest? And whereas uh, maybe Barlow's, uh, you could see it quite quickly that there was a PR company involved. Where, what are the telltale signs?
3: Well, you know, I always used to start kind of with, with let's say, the senior management, the CEO. And, 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 you know, roughly I would segment them into two. You know, you've got some CEOs who was, would give you the textbook answer. And then you've got other CEOs that were independent thinkers. And it was always a fresh perspective. And often, you know, that would tell you down below who actually wrote you know, who actually wrote the, the, the report. And you can tell quite quickly if you know the business. But I think what's, what's probably more fascinating about annual reports is to, is to go back five years and see what they said you know, and how consistent they've been because everyone's you know, optimistic and probably too optimistic and they tend to gloss over you know, the mistakes that they've made or the, the strategies that haven't gone wrong or how many one-offs are in their accounts. I think I mentioned the other day with the investment banking, they seem to have one-offs, you know, every year for 20 years. So That's not a one-off. So I think with, with financial statements, it's really interesting to go back to a bit of history and say, well, you know, what did you say five years ago and how consistent uh, have you been with that?
1: Mm. A chairman of the company is Santi Puerta, who was a colleague of mine uh, going back for more years than I think either of us want to talk about. But you could see even there when she was in her early 30s, uh, she was very special uh, and came back to South Africa from Unilever, where she had a quite a glittering career, uh, and then went into Absa at the at the bank and has done a lot of other things. But it's interesting to see that they've managed to nab somebody as uh, as competent as her to run the or to be the chair or to run the board. And I guess that also tells you about this organisation.
3: Now, without a doubt, I mean, do you have kind of you know figureheads for the sake of having a figurehead and almost an ambassadorial? role that's going to maybe impress others or do you have someone that can provide genuine insights into you know the business and as you say someone like Santi that's you know been in banking uh, and also you know you know made it globally you know it's wonderful to have someone like that
1: and a great marketer as well and we're seeing that in a lot of the interesting strategy in partnerships you mentioned in the interview with Jackie that they're not going to have home loans on their own book they do that with SA Home Loans but they just want to protect uh, their clients from going off to another bank just for the sake of having a mortgage.
3: Yeah, and I think, you know, what's really interesting is that they don't do everything. You know, so so their product offering is still quite narrow. And as Harry said, uh, you know, there's always that temptation to, you know, jump on the next bandwagon or to try too many things. Uh, and really what they're doing is focusing on those things that work where they think they have a core competence into their almost 6 million customers, and then finding great partners to work with, not trying to own everything themselves. And I think that's also a challenge where the big banks in South Africa, you know, they're not great at partnerships. They want to own everything. Uh, and if you look at kind of where technology is going and FinTech is going, you know, you have to have much more of a partner mindset because you can't do it all yourself and Manage a complex business, and just you know, kind like of quick look at the results. And just what was quite interesting is that in you know, a bottom line, they made about four and a half billion after tax, which we know is lower because of COVID. But of that four and a half billion, they made uh, one billion in credit life, and they made uh, six hundred and fifty million in funeral. So they're making over one third of their profits in kind of not traditional, you know, banking uh, areas. But because they've got that rich customer base and great partners. Uh, and a strong affinity with customers. They're actually able to make money. You'll know that, you know, banking, they kind of say you make on deposits, uh, you make a margin on your deposits, and then you make it on your spread, on your lending side. You know, but they're not. You know, they're making it far, far broader.
1: Interesting story for Capitech and uh, a company whose dividend today was 16 rand a share. It's only down very slightly on last year's 17 rand 50. And uh, we're going to be talking uh, more about Capitech For years to come, the way that the company has performed. Someone else who breaks the mold is Magda Wiesichter. And Magda, the founder of Signia, who's decided to step down from that company, was right in the thick of things when the state capturers were at their zenith. She had a pretty rough ride around 2016 and 2017, but recent reports have told us that the South African police services are now going for the guy who made all of that uh, happen, David Matlobo, the uh, then Minister of State Security, and now, would you believe, still in the Cabinet as the, minister, as the Deputy Minister of Housing, or he um, well, have got another name for it, Settlements, or, or something along those lines, anyway. Uh, but I spoke to Magda today, the full interview which also gets her take on vaccines and uh, and the fact that she believes south africa pretty much has herd immunity uh, it's a really really good interview it's on biz news radio to go and listen to the whole thing but we pulled this clip out of her experiences of being abused by the state apparatus let's have a listen magda Wizicka joins us now magda you hit the The news, again, Uh, this time, though, uh, to do with something uh, with a fellow called David Machlobo, who is a member Mm -hmm. of Ramaphosa's cabinet still, which I was quite Mm -hmm. surprised about, given all the allegations against him. Over the years, and particularly going back three, four years ago, I do recall on numerous occasions you saying that, sorry about my line, it crackles because I've got people listening Mm -hmm. in. I thought you were joking.
0: (laughs) Not at all. Not at all. So obviously, you know, when I became um, a critic of Jacob Zuma, and I to date struggle and will never call him president, Jacob Zuma. So when I became a very active uh, critic of what was happening, and not only of Jacob Zuma, but also of the corruption that was happening in South Africa. And, you know, and as I always said, you know, the corruption in South Africa was actually driven by global giant multinational companies like McKinsey, like SEP, like Bain, um, which paid bribes. Um, KPMG, then, don't forget know, them. KPMG, whom I fired, first to fire as auditors. <laughs> no one wants to accept audit appointments as a consequence. Um, Because we are an activist client. Uh, so KPMG, um, you know, and obviously much more of my knowledge came from Gupta Leaks and my awareness of Gupta Leaks. Um, I became a target for, and, and I wasn't alone. So, so let me just be, be clear. I wasn't alone in this. I became a target for state surveillance. Um, so, you know, those were quite, um, stressful times because I had to get uh, bodyguards for myself uh, you know and everywhere I went I went with bodyguards. My children till they went to study in the U.S. had bodyguards at all times. I was followed um, and on many occasions you could see them following us. Um, You know I remember one incident when my bodyguards kind of became aware of us being followed from the Cape Town airport back to town. And, you know, I was driving back to Cygnus offices. And so in order to, to determine whether we were being followed, they started driving incredibly quickly, kind of zigzagging between cars. And there was a car that followed us, which zigzagged mm-hmm. between, um, you know, the, the other vehicles. And I was sitting in the back a little bit petrified. I have to say that the cell phone... The tapping was hilarious because you could hear the click every single time I made a phone call or a phone call came through. There was a click on the line and then the line would start crackling. So you knew that they were listening. Um, I didn't know that, you know, that they were triangulating our movements using cell phones. And then um, the, the, you know, most annoying thing was, you know, I do travel internationally a lot. And that was going through customs at Cape Town Airport because there were two ladies who were clearly not customs they were state security and they were there to harass me so every single time i would they would know that i would fly into cape town airport i would be stopped and they obviously had orders to keep him for an hour because they kept looking at their watches
1: interesting part of all of this is that now the south african police are investigating david mclobel that's all over the media now it's it's pretty common mm. knowledge and the allegation is that he was running a parallel spy ring. Now, mm. if you're being harassed when you come back uh, from traveling abroad by operatives who were put into mm. Cape Town International Airport, mm. it doesn't sound like a parallel spy ring to me. It sounds very much like it was part of yeah. his whole department.
0: I don't think it was Parallel. I think it was ingrained that's what uh, they were used for uh, by the previous administration I don't believe look I th- I think there were certain people who were nominated to do this to harass activists not only activists you know I'm also aware and I'm not you know going to to use names but you know various politicians who were in ANC who are you know I always talk about the good ANC and the bad ANC so there is a good ANC um, so other people were equally harassed and put under state surveillance. It wasn't just, um, you know, the private sector figures involved in the fight against Zuma. Uh, but I think that's how state security was used. It was like, a, you know, your own army in a democratic state.
1: You have said on mm-hmm. social media you're happy to provide evidence. Have you got anything mm-hmm. hard that you can give in this case?
0: I can definitely present myself and the bodyguards who were part of my self-protection, you know, my protection team. And we can testify to the fact that we were followed. I mean, I knew, you know, I I saw the guys um, following us. Obviously I was involved in that motor car incident where it was very clear that a car was at a very high speed following a vehicle. So it's not just my words, you know, there, there were other witnesses involved. Um, You know, the, the, Cracking of the tapping of the phone, I mean, you know, my my husband said to me, well, the two ladies that always harass you at Cape Town Airport, why didn't you take their names or their photographs? (laughs) I just kind of thought, well, you know, I didn't know whether I wasn't going to be arrested if I tried. Um, But I don't think that, you know, that kind of evidence is really necessary because, you know, people within the state security sector are coming forward testifying that they were entrusted with doing this. So um, it's not an issue of even me, you know, bearing witness to to what happened. It's people within state security who are, you know, turning uh, against the old regime uh, and are testifying to the fact that they did it.
1: What a story, Stephen Nathan. I mean, what a story.
3: Mm. Unbelievable! Brave woman, brave, courageous, and it's amazing that she still sounds so cheerful. You know, well done to her for enduring that and staying, you know, staying the course. Uh, uh, you know, and raising her hand so early.
1: Yeah, she did, and and many people forget that at the time that Magda was speaking out, uh, and also in the interview, she says she was surprised that other people in business didn't speak out as well. Well, uh, that made her more of a target, and. She came in for the harassment that we heard about. But the good news is, that's in the past. We've got a different country today. My word, aren't we lucky that December 2017, the votes went the way they did. Can you just imagine what would be going on? And one thing would be going on. We certainly wouldn't have a ball properties that would be looking as a uh, an exciting prospect. Because, uh, Justin, with, with property, it's all about long term, isn't it?
2: Exactly, Alec. And, uh, I mean, Baldwin have put up the beautiful uh, Wedgwood um, apartment facility, which is right here. I mean, we could throw eggs at the building if we really wanted to.
1: And one of our colleagues, uh, uh, Lindy, Lindy Ware has bought her first property, and it's a Baldwin property. Uh, the chief executive, Steve Brooks, is with us, and we also have Rupert Finnamore, who's from easy equities. We've been talking a lot to the easy equities guys. Rupert, we'll we'll pick up with you in just a moment. But Steve, where did it all begin? Because when I have a look back at the share price of Baldwin, you guys are around about a half of the level that you were uh, some time ago, and yet you're a hot stock of the moment.
8: Yeah, thank you very much, uh, panelists, Alec. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Yeah, look, we started this business 26 years ago um, from humble beginnings in the south of Joburg, culminating in the listing. Yeah, the, the, the small caps have taken a massive hammering in the last couple of years, but we're on a good recovery. Now, share price went down to about two bucks, which was very, very tragic. And now it's recovering well, and we're looking forward to a great future. And if we continue having great car clients like Lindeware, we're very happy, and we <laughs> keep forward. Where
1: in the south did you
8: start? We started in the south in Robertsham, in a in, um, Robertsham. Oh, in the development called um, Ivory Court. Fifty apartments was our humble beginnings. So we started with that, sold it out on one Sunday afternoon, and we progressed from there, and now we're nationwide, which we, I'm exceptionally proud of, of Steve, our outcome,
1: Steve, you need to swap notes with uh, uh, Robbie Brosen. Do you know that Nando's, which is now global, also started in the south of Johannesburg in, uh, in Rosettenville though, next door to Robertsham. So humble um, beginnings uh, don't mean that you're going to have a humble ending. But where you are at the moment, uh, Pitfalliun, a uh, highly respected asset manager, and yep. uh, he was at, at our investment conference. He said Baldwin Properties was a great stock, great value stock. He suggested that it was one of his that he would put in his bundle – of uh, undervalued uh, opportunities we then had johnny rabbi from the rabbi property group in cape town said he wouldn't touch it with a a proverbial barge pole it seems like not everybody's a fan
8: oh thanks john Robbie. i mean that's Maybe maybe we should discuss um, how we wouldn't touch him with a barge pole. I mean, really. <laughs> no,
1: he meant your shares. Yeah. He didn't mean the company. He, he meant the oh. shares were, were uh, just he didn't see value in them. That was it. I apologize if I sent you the wrong message there, Steve.
8: Yeah. But Pitfall, you and I agree with you. The shares are undervalued. We're trading at a, quite a strong discount to NAV. You know, we're nationwide. We're in the right sector. You know, we are, our apartments are good quality. Our lifestyle centers are exceptional. We're about to start construction on our Wedgwood development in Sandton. And that's changing the, the landscape in, in, the, in the market. So we believe we're a good thing. We've been around for 26 years. So, you know, we really believe that it's a, a great share to buy.
1: Rupert Fenimore is with Easy Properties. Rupert, how are you guys uh, related to Baldwin Properties and, and, and why them?
6: Well, thanks for having me on, first of all, Alec. Um, well, why Baldwin, we've, we've, through some of our shareholders, there's a long relationship with Steve and his company. Um, when we launched, we were obviously looking for um, really good stock to launch our um, fractional investment platform with. And we managed to get a, a couple of really good deals um, from Steve to be able to offer those back into our um, investor community and um the the kind of relationships's gone from there I mean um easy properties launched uh, just shy of a year ago, and it's interesting to hear Steve talk about those fifty units that he started with in the south. I was um, having a look at uh, the the units that we've invested in with through our community um of the of the Baldwin units and it's with this next um, IPO that we're going to do it's going to take us up to about almost close on fifty units of the of the units so um Maybe there's a, there's a turning of history or a circle there um, to look at in the future.
1: So just to explain that, you offer Easy Equities clients in the same way as uh, Justin and I can go by 100 rands worth of Amazon shares instead of having to pay 60,000 rand to get one share. You also offer a share in a Baldwin apartment.
6: Yes, we do. I mean, it's it's not only Baldwin, though we've obviously done quite a few transactions with Baldwin. So um, what we go and do is we we, um, go and find really good property deals. We um, offer that we raise capital to purchase those uh, properties through an IPO um, and allow guys to invest, you know, people who've wanted to invest in property and haven't had the opportunities due to uh, a number of the friction points that exist. Um, we've kind of overcome a lot of those friction points and give access to guys invest in really good uh, property investments, either at a good discount or uh, high yield um, for as little as one rand. So, as an example, with one of the Baldwin um, developments that we invested in, we, we bought 10 units out of the blight, um, which is out in Pretoria. It's a, it's a staggering thing. And, I mean, Steve talks about those um, entertainment and lifestyle centers. They are they're mind-blowing what they actually offer in terms of the kind of average purchase price. But um, we bought 10 units there, and I think we had north of 7,500 people invest in those particular 10 units. So it's it's really providing wonderful access to, to people who didn't have opportunities to necessarily invest in property uh, before.
2: Rupert, if I'm looking for property exposure, why would I go through easy properties Rather than a pure play, say, through Growth Point or Redefine, I mean, they're operating at big discounts and you're getting good yields there too.
6: Yeah, I think it's a very different play altogether. So, um, so far, our, our offerings are only residential, though we are going to be um, offering different uh, segments of the property market to invest in. But, um, you know, we, we're not a, a listed property fund. We, we're not a REIT. We, we're not any of those things, and we're not trying to replicate that either. What we are actually doing is, is through a crowdsourcing um, opportunity, giving people the opportunity to just invest in traditional residential real estate, which obviously has an enormous um, political and psychological history in this country, for one thing. So people actually want to invest in um, basic residential units. I think um, you know, if, if one considers some of the complexity around um, these big managed funds, it's very difficult to actually see through these management structures and look at what these individual um, properties are and what the investment opportunities are. And you're kind of theoretically buying and trading shares, actually. This way around is actually just much more of a, an investment in the, um, the physical property. You, each one of these IPOs is a separate um, shelf company and you get opportunities to invest in individual properties of your choice you know, maybe you want to invest in two and skip one and you really like the look of another. So you can kind of diversify through these um, residential units that you may or may not like, rather than just putting your money into a managed fund where obviously you get very really little say in, in what happens and what gets purchased and, and whatnot. So there, there are quite a lot of fundamental differences.
1: Stephen, uh, from your perspective, it's interesting that you you are bringing property ownership further down the scale, in other words, to the mass of South Africans. Now, if you can get that right in this country, if you can serve the bottom of the pyramid, or not necessarily the absolute bottom of the pyramid, but uh, somewhere on in the pyramid rather than where many people are focusing just at that very, very rarefied top end, you can have a fantastic business. And we've seen that with Capitech. We've seen it with ShopRite, for instance. Is that where your focus is? is? Is that your... Uh, your why as Kerry Faree was saying a little earlier in the program Steve Brooks.
8: You yeah sorry sorry I was yeah yeah look um I think the I think you know what easy equities are doing is fantastic. You know the legacy of this country, the history, you know, to allow previously disadvantaged peoples to buy shares in a, a born apartment or any of their other apartments is, is unbelievable. You know, we've—I think—we've just done a deal with you guys on Polar Fields, on a bit of stock in Polar Fields. The yeah. blide was fantastic. I mean, Alec, you know, like I'd love to get you out there and go for a swim at the Crystal Lagoon. There, I think you'd be absolutely amazed at what you see out there. So, yeah, I think there's a there's a great future. You know, we've launched uh, two or three years ago our new green brand, which is to cater for people that that want houses below a million, and that market is absolutely taken off. And it's a real, real large sector of the market, and I think with easy equities, I think we're going to have a long relationship. Um, I'd like to obviously see more than 50 apartments. It's very, very nice that you acknowledge that our start was 50. Maybe we challenge you guys to get to 500. You know, that would be a. I think there's a there was a there was a Gunson 500 surfing competition at one stage. Maybe we can get from 50 to 500.
1: Uh, and That's Justin's nice, shaking right like it. Yeah, Justin his head. He says, what's his Gunston 500? He probably hasn't <laughs> heard of Sean Thompson either. But Stephen Nathan, I'm no. sure you you you, you uh, itching to have a question.
3: Uh, well, maybe just a comment first. I mean, I think it's fantastic, uh, you know, this fractional ownership and, you know, bringing more people into the savings net because South Africa, you know, we have a spending problem and we have a debt problem, uh, you know, so we're kind of crowding out the lower income. And often it's the lower income who get the worst deal in financial services. Because if you look at the furniture retailers and the unsecured lending, you know, they end up paying three or four times more than anyone else. And also it's the wrong, you know, it's the wrong, uh, they're doing the wrong things with money. We don't have a savings culture and these initiatives, uh, easy equity, easy properties, creating that sell savings culture. And hopefully people seeing the benefits of growth in their savings is absolutely fantastic. I do have a question, uh, uh uh, for Rupert, is just to ask you, uh, how do you price this? Because one of the things in the stock market is that, you know, you've got uh, fair pricing, transparent pricing, and reasonable liquidity. Uh, so how do you price these, uh, uh, your fractional properties? And how often do they trade, and what is the, you know, what does that look like?
6: Yeah, so the, the timing of that question is actually really good because um, – We've just launched an auction capability on our platform literally yesterday. That's obviously to deal with one of the major liquidity issues around um, investing in property. You know, we obviously encourage people not to invest with money that they're going to need for school fees or rent down the line. We're encouraging the the full investment period five to seven years. But things happen and people need liquidity and, and, you know, traditionally it's really difficult to get that liquidity. So we've um, created a... Uh, an auction platform, just like at the um, auction periods during on the JSE, people placing bids and offers, and obviously there's a, a fair market-related price that, that will come out of that. But when we actually go and, and raise the original capital, I mean, it's very simple. Um, we, we go out and uh, make an offer on these properties. We go and get independent valuations done, which will obviously show the discount to purchase, and we basically issue um, shares in each one of these SPVs relative to what that purchase price is at a, at a power value of one rand per share. And then, obviously, we use that um, cash to, to raise that money. Um, you know, the, the, the auctions is, an, is another option, and we, we, we still will remain to see where, um, where these levels are going to settle. But interestingly enough, um, what we do do is we, we, we give a, a, an indicative value of the shares based on a net asset value and a discount value on the purchase. And so what has been lacking to see is that these, the bids and offers that have been placed in the last um, day are all very much kind of aligned with what that um, uh, share price is based on the, the new valuation of these properties. But that's essentially how the, um, the share price kind of plays out. It's
1: so nice to see these innovative new concepts. Before we uh, we we close off the program tonight, though, Steve, can you just give us Steve Brooks? This is can you just give us some uh, some visibility on on your pipeline? How many new projects does Borewin have on the planning in the planning stage?
8: We have 18 projects that are live at the moment, and we have a, an absolutely huge pipeline of over 60,000 apartments. So that's a, it's one of the biggest pipelines in the country, which we're very proud of. Strategically placed, it's very simple. We've got four brands. Our green brand, under a million. Our classic brand, which is what Bourne was built on, which is the typical four-story apartments. The signature brand, which is slightly more upmarket. And our lifestyle brand, which is the high-rise, as in Wedgwood in Santon. And we operate in the Gauteng province, which is... In the old-fashioned words, um, Pretoria and Johannesburg, or Swanee and Egoli. And then up the north coast, Belito-Umschlanga Node, and then in the Western Cape. So there's three predominant areas we develop in, and we've got four different brands. So that is the simplicity of it. And we do approximately 4,000 apartments a year.
1: Steve Brooks, the Chief Executive of Borwin Properties. We also heard from Rupert Finnamore, the CEO of Easy Properties, uh, which is part of Easy Equities, uh, making accessible investments into the residential sector. Our guest uh, co-host tonight was Stephen Nathan, uh, who is an independent now, the founder of 10X, which he left a little while ago. And it's always good to have Stephen with us on a Tuesday night. Before we go, uh, here's my colleague, Justin Rowe Roberts, with an update on the markets.
2: The JSE All Share Index was up at 67,100. MTN increased 4 Rand to 94 Rand a share on the back of news that CEO Rolf Maputa bought over 5 million Rand's worth of the company shares. Sasol increased 6.5% to 225 Rand a share on the back of stronger brand crude prices. Naspers increased 100 rand to a touch over 3,500 rand a share, and car track fell again, this time by 7 percent to 48 rand 50. The share is now down almost 50 percent from its highs a few months ago. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies, to 14 rand 56 cents to the dollar, 20 rand to the sterling, and 17 rand 36 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at 1,742 dollars an ounce. Brent crude is up at 64 dollars a barrel. Premier pr- cryptocurrency will put you back 920,000 rand of Bitcoin. And surprise, surprise, the S&P 500 has hit a new record high.
1: And the other uh, market numbers to come out of the U.S. today, the Dow is down half a percent and the Nasdaq is up uh, 0.57%. So another good day for the Nasdaq and the S&P being pulled higher by tech shares it's been good to be with you on the biz news power hour this evening we'll be back again tomorrow at 5:30 on fine music radio in cape town and uh, live streamed around the world as we've just heard earlier from the uh, west ham united supporter who's in berlin uh, you can get us anywhere by going onto biznewsradio.com from our team till the next time cheerio